Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Product. As always, I'm your host, Zach Darnell. Joining me as my co-host for the show is Chris Schinkel. Chris, how are you, my friend? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I appreciate you joining me for this show. Chris, really quick, just a level set. Would you explain a little bit about uh, what you do at SEP and kind of where you came from? My title now at SEP is Director of Innovation. I've been in SEP for 24 years, started as a software developer, worked all the way up to managing projects and teams. Now I do a lot of sharing with um, our clients and really helping to coordinate the practices within inside SEP around product, UX, and engineering, and how to leverage those different disciplines to best help our customers. One of the benefits I get a lot of times getting to speak at conferences across the country is, is getting to see inside and meet different folks doing interesting things in product. And um, we're going to talk to one of those today. We just wrapped up our conversation with Tim Lancaster and how relevant some of the things that you just talked about around, uh, you know, the, the three disciplines at SCP. One of the things that stood out to me in the conversation that we had with him was, you know, his lens on integrating deep domain. The questions that you asked him around that were just phenomenal. I loved his ideas uh, tactically and, and strategically around that. What were some of the things that stood out for you in that conversation? Probably similar to you. One of the things I appreciate about Tim, going to a lot of Agile conferences, being in the Agile Lean community space, I think you hear a lot of the same messages over and over again, same voice, everything. And while Tim leverages some of those same ideas, the way he talks about them is just a little different. And you know, words, he kind of says it, but words matter. And just how how you talk about those different things, like you you alluded to the, the integration of deep domains within, within an organization. It's just fascinating to me. And I love his, I'll say, fresh perspective on some of those ideas. I love the way that you just characterized that. And it's so true. You know, sometimes you need to, you know, hear things in a fresh way. It's not necessarily like a new idea, but it's a fresh way of looking at it or a fresh set of vernacular or language you know, one of the other things that I, I think I wrote down while we were talking was, you know, his idea that, you know, philosophy, your overall organizational philosophy should cut vertically. And I've never really thought about it that way, but it makes total sense that y- you wouldn't want that to, quote unquote, cut any other way than across the organization. And I think that intentionality of thought was very, very, well, fresh. So I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I love that he talks about his problem framework, and, and it sounds so, sort of so simple and easy, and applications much more difficult, right? But you have people who, in the industry, who come up with a new framework because they're trying to sell something or make a name for themselves, or they're, they want to characterize something to blog about. And Tim comes up with some of these ideas for himself. You know, he talks about how they influence his thinking and, and, and help him 
visualize and better understand a problem and create a bigger space to explore some of these ideas than, than what you can in your own head. And I just I just love that thought of how to do it and that these things that he talks about come from work he's done, right? Personal things that he's done, not trying to come up with something to as a consultant sell or or even share. It's just who he is and, and what he does. And I love that we get to see a little bit of an insight into into that. Yeah, as we got towards the end of our conversation, we could have easily spent another few hours diving deeper I think we're going to have to have a follow-up show with Tim. I think that's going to have to happen. There's definitely a lot lot more there. Well, and you know, I've had lots of conversations with Tim. I spent a lot of time. And so some of the things he shared, I've, I've heard him. We have talked about literally for years together. But for whatever reason, at the end, I decided to ask him about things he'd read or new things he'd read. And I know some of those books, but he totally surprised me with one I've never really heard him talk about that I just think is really interesting. I want to look it up now and go go check it out um, because it just was not something I was really familiar with. So that, that sort of surprised me. I kind of felt like I knew answers to a lot of the other questions a little bit. I didn't know the answer to that question. That's a really good call, Chris. Um, I definitely walked away with more than one thing to try for myself, especially the visualization, some of the books that he recommended. So I'm excited to dive in. Thank you so much again for joining us for this conversation. We'll dive into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, Today, joining me is my co-host, Chris Schinkel. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing well. That's awesome. And our guest today is Tim Lancaster. Tim is the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Automation at Indigo Bioautomation. That is not the transportation company, Indigo. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to dive in with you. And to kind of kick us off, would you mind uh, just telling us a little bit about you, your background, and, and what Indigo is focusing on today? My story actually starts a little longer ago than I'd like to admit, but back in 97, I joined a company called Beckman Coulter right out of college uh, with a degree in computer science. And I worked in life science automation for about 14, 14 and a half years there, doing everything from embedded firmware all the way up to uh, large team leadership and development of, of various products. Interestingly, I was working in molecular diagnostics before I left there, as I about the time that I left. I was working in that space, uh, which has come back here more recently uh, with the recent COVID situation. Uh, and I left Beckman to join Indigo um, back in late 2011, early 2012. And since then, I've been there. I started out leading their engineering team, building that up um, from a team of about three or four at the time, as well as just the overall organization, built up the technology side of things. And then more recently, have taken a, an addition to the technology side really taking a look at the overall strategy of the company, where we're going, how do we do organizational development? How do we align that with the strategy of the product portfolio that we want to do? And what do we say is our next goals as a company? Wow. You've been around a little while, my friend. It started out as, uh, as doing some embedded work. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely did a little. Uh, I, have some, I have some stories about the early days. I did some work uh, on some custom uh, hardware uh, that was actually doing paper towel tension testing for Procter & Gamble uh, as a kind of a custom piece of hardware that was set. So I've done a lot of wide range of things in my life uh, so far, but a lot of them have really kind of led up to a lot of the things that you learn along that, that path, not just about the technology, but about products in general, as well as teams and how they work and, and all those kinds of things. 
Well, I can imagine given the the last year, some of the organizational development pieces that you've taken on here recently, I would imagine have been impacted by some of that. Uh, Chris and I were talking about a little, a little bit about that yesterday. So, uh, yeah, to give you a little idea about what does Indigo do. So Beckman Coulter is a life science company uh, that does in their Indianapolis office, they do a lot of life science automation. So we're originally a company called Sagian. Uh, they did a lot of drug discovery testing. Uh, robotics basically made it up against various hardware pieces and then the software to tie all that together uh, led to, into liquid handling. Uh, liquid handling is the the process by which you take up, say, a sample and much of the COVID testing you'd be familiar with today and prepare it for actually the test to be performed. And so you have to put it through a number of processes and changes to get it ready for that the ultimate result. And so we built liquid handlers, we built in uh, testing devices and, and variety of things here at Beckman Coulter. Uh, I moved over to Indigo and Indigo is a software focused company. So Indigo does automated data analysis for mass spectrometry uh, as a SaaS application. And so really the heart of what we've done is taken something which is pretty sophisticated signal processing. And we took that from an enterprise on-premises application from when I started up through a fully automated deploy, push button kind of deploy SaaS application. We run about know, something on the order of 1.7, 1.8 million samples a month through that system, uh, servicing primarily the clinical toxicology market. So places that are doing opioid testing. And this is primarily mass spec, which is a very sophisticated measurement technology, primarily used in reference labs and other places of that nature, although eventually it'll make its way into mainstream testing. And then what's been happening lately is we've really seen the opportunity, not because we were necessarily expecting it or looking for it, but because our customers came and asked us. A lot of what we've done for mass spec is taken what was really a data crunch and a labor crunch in the places where they were doing a lot of drugs of abuse testing. So before we had COVID, we had opioids and opioid testing was a, a big challenge. There was a lot of it that needed to be done um, and not necessarily all the expertise to interpret all the signals that were coming off of the systems. And so we began to build solutions around that particular problem. And some of our large customers, uh, as, the, as the COVID test crunch hit, came to us and said, hey, we, we saw what you did in this other space. It's made such a huge difference for us. Would you consider doing something in this PCR space as well? And so we started late last year and we were like, well, yeah, we can take a shot at that. And a lot of the things that we've been working on over the last year, uh, several months, was focused on exactly that, taking the, the kind of core of what we've done and swapping it out for a, a PCR-based processing system and making what would be our, our kind of second core product around that idea. To be able to adjust and, and I don't want to say pivot, I don't know if you would label it as a pivot to the core business, but to be able to adjust to market demands like that, that's pretty incredible. You know, hearing about these stories, that's um, not everybody is as fortunate as that, be able to adjust to that. Do you feel like there's any, anything specific that you guys have done to kind of set yourselves up for that? Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with how do you think about your product and how do you think about what it is that you as a company do, how you define what you think your strengths are as a company, uh, how do you think what your kind of core competencies are is the, the buzzword, but it's really like, what do you do well? What expertise do you have? What do you philosophically agree with? I think the cultural values that you hold are as important as the skills that you have. And therefore, what opportunities then align well with that? Because you really need to not just bring skills to bear, but you need to bring people's desire, right? You need their people 
their will to create something new to bear. And so a lot of what we've done over the last several years, again, when I, when I showed up originally, you know, I tell the story where I watched an engineer put a new web server up for one of our on-premises customers. And it was a three-hour process for a single web server to come up for one customer. And to move from that through the various uh, infrastructure as code, all the way through containerization, and then philosophically moving some of those same ideas into heavily automated testing and other things into the the main product um, so that we can make a lot of the systems and capabilities that we had in a modular way. So when it came time to actually move into one of these other spaces, or as I'll, I'll mention in a moment, to take one of those pieces and actually apply it to a different space altogether, we already had those things kind of broken apart. We understood them in that way. And so there is a definitely a, a philosophy piece to it in the way that you approach kind of everyday work, uh, how you build it. Are you building it just for the next moment, the next sale? Are you building something that philosophically has some underpinnings that you can then move as one of the pieces, one of the details, uh, really in almost like a, a leaf note out on the tree that's not really an important detail, but it is a, an important piece, um, changes for you. And so for us, we actually were able to bring up something around around PCR, which is a much less sophisticated signal within, I think we had it up and running in like three weeks and we're able to demonstrate it to potential customers at that point uh, in terms of what we were able to do. Because a lot of the other underpinnings of the system in terms of what does it take to flow data through a laboratory, those were all shared. Those were all common. And the other thing I did mention earlier was in terms of things that we're up to is a company came to us and asked that we might also help with one of their signal processing problems. So this is a company out of the UK. This is public knowledge, so I'm free to share this, called The Binding Site. The Binding Site is well known for their testing for immune systems. They build antibodies that they can use to do very immune system testing. And they're building a new test for multiple myeloma, something that's on the multiple thousands of times more sensitive than the current test. Problem was, is they were using technology that had a fairly sophisticated measurement associated with it. And the data that was coming off of it was fairly complex. And while that wasn't a problem for a well-trained expert reviewer, somebody say, for instance, out of the Mayo Clinic, which is where they kind of helped develop this, but it was a problem if they wanted to democratize that test and bring it into other places. And so they were looking for some help in that space. And again, kind of by reputation, they came, knocked on our door, found us and said, hey, would you consider helping out with this? And so over the last year or two, we've also been developing their full software uh, automation associated with that particular product, which mates kind of that liquid handling I mentioned earlier. So there's some some of my past experience coming back, as well as the signal processing and other types of technologies necessary to bring that that test, not just to the experts in the world, but also to the rest of the people that need it globally. And multiple myeloma obviously being a, a pretty significant disease that deserves some attention. So some of these opportunities that show up, and that was us taking that core processing technology and then reapplying it into a new space. Tim, I know when we've talked before and we've talked about innovation, especially in the software space, it feels like a lot of companies are looking for like this next disruptive or transformative innovation. And they see it as this huge leap or completely separate business model or offering. And we've talked a lot about just sort of adjacent innovation and sort of like changing the product or the market. 
for the method for delivering it and, and making small tweaks to move and that really more innovation probably happens that way and just doesn't get talked about as much. Um, it gets overlooked. Talk a little bit about how just Indigo's sort of, uh, I don't know, philosophy, if you will, or strategy around innovation. It's definitely a buzzword in the sense that it, the idea is that you're going to create something different. And a lot of it is a, a desire to get away from feeling like you're just doing the same thing. Um, you know, common terms like red ocean. I, I feel like I'm just adding buttons over and over again to my application to try to get it, just keep ahead or keep up with the Joneses in these spaces. And yeah, innovation, a lot of times there's this kind of a myth and it does sometimes happen in kind of big leaps, but more often, at least in my experience, it happens in this kind of incremental fashion over a long period. It's a, an, it's an investment done daily for a long period of time. And so, as I mentioned earlier, for instance, we had philosophically taken the approach of what we did well uh, and tried to reapply that over and over again, continuously improving in that. And at some point, you start to see the opportunities arise where your philosophy, your particular approach to how you solve a problem would potentially map to other places. And right now we're in a position because we've made some of these kinds of long-term investments where we're not just evaluating, say, what we're doing with the PCR market. Honestly, had, had we not been asked, I'm not sure we would have necessarily gone there. I'll talk about that in a little bit in terms of blind spots uh, where you might have opportunity for innovation and don't see it. But we were looking at what some adjacencies where other places might benefit from our philosophical approach. Uh, and we are in a place where we could very quickly do that. Now, what may feel in one market like a huge innovation, because it's just a huge jump forward, often is coming from another market where it was developed, right? Slowly, thoughtfully, created incrementally as you start to understand what the, the real need is, not just the things that people say they need, which is often kind of couched in things that are familiar to them, things they've already seen but really starting to understand the problem a little more deeply. And then as you, as you have applied that in that one market, you're able to actually go to a different market. And that feels like a big jump. It feels like a big leap forward, but a lot of that philosophically was, was founded in another place. And we didn't necessarily set out to do that in some sort of grand scheme. It, it really is kind of having this constant opportunity to reflect, well, what's working? Uh, what do we have? What do we do well? Where are some of the opportunities and how do you just kind of continuously improve your ability to learn an ability to apply that to the product and get it out into the customer's hands in a way that you can get feedback on it. And over time, yeah, it feels like a huge innovation. And for people that have never seen it before, the first time they may encounter it, they're like, well, this is, this is dramatically different. But the reality is, is that it was built over a long period of time uh, with a lot of incremental learning. Yeah, it seems like when the story is published, right, it goes from A to B, and that A to B might have been small increments over many months and many challenges. And the path is never as clear as what it seems in hindsight, right? You're just continually preparing and doing good things. Like you said, continually refining what you do and, and reflecting on what you do well. Yeah, and never be afraid of a little revisionist history. And I'm not saying tell people the, the wrong story, but in your own mind, understanding that the experiences that you've had and the opportunities that they have presented and being able to basically create a new narrative around it and where that's leading you. For instance, we've collected um, a lot of the data that we've processed in our system since about 2015. 
we are now probably the world's largest collection of mass spec data anywhere run across multiple different vendors instruments in production annotated with real reviewers results and if we are going to try to build the kind of machine for really rapidly improving the interpretation of mass spec data going back in history you think you know what we really would need is a lot of data now we didn't go into it and create that data other than we were like you know what it seems a good idea to like let's, let's start keeping this we're not sure exactly what we're going to do with it yet but we're, we think it's going to be valuable. And so there's a little revisionist history in the idea that like, we set out to do that and put ourselves in that position. But you make these decisions and then you start to go, okay, what could we do with this? And so learning to apply other types of techniques to that data now that you have it, what kinds of things can you do with machine learning and other things? Innovation kind of are born out of those opportunities that you create, not because you had the foresight, but because you're willing to kind of follow those instincts as you go along make good decisions consistently and reflect on them as you go. We talked before, I know you, you've made significant investments in automation and uh, test automation, continuous delivery, you know, really thinking about those pieces. I think sometimes those get billed as uh, I don't know, too detailed, too deep in the weeds and not really talked about and thought about at a, at a corporate level or strategy. Um, they're seeing more of an engineering thing. But in a lot of respects, some of those things have enabled you to take advantage of these opportunities or even reshape the way the FDA looks at 510Ks or just, I, I feel like some of the engineering pieces that may get overlooked are sort of pivotal to position you in, um, to take advantage of some of these opportunities. I mean, it's an interesting point. Some things, you know, that that we do to us are, are somewhat obvious in this in, in, because we're in the middle of it, right? We're it's in the water we swim in. But uh, stepping back from it, yes, I I definitely have a very holistic view towards uh, aligning overall company strategy and the organizational development and your overall philosophy has to go top to bottom. It isn't something you can apply at the top and expect for it to actually make a difference. There isn't some sort of trickle down innovation uh, theory here that can happen. It really has to happen throughout the overall company. And what I mean by that is there are certain characteristics that you want to build into an organization, not because you absolutely require them. And so in the sense of, well, is this going to get us the next sale? Is this going to get us, is this required for our regulatory needs? Is this required for, you know, you look at all the reasons why people might want to invest in some of those things. And what isn't on the list is this, does this just improve our overall position as a company? It's kind of like going out and doing your workouts every day as an, as an individual. You go out and do, I, am I getting preparing for a triathlete uh, as a triathlete? No, I'm not. I'm not going to run a triathlon. But what I do is I just kind of make those investments over time to keep myself in a good state of, of health, mental health, physical health, those kinds of things. I think organizations are very similar. And so, yeah, we've made investments very heavily in not just those obvious things like continuous de development or continuous delivery types of ideas, but in aligning our other processes as well. So we operate as a class one exempt medical device and in the SaaS application. And you can go look, I can tell you that there isn't any FDA guidance about how to do that. There isn't any paper you can read that says, here's what you need to do. 
And so the traditional approach in that is to follow what is out there as guidance, which, you know, is largely drawn from much more waterfall type methods, manufacturing methods and other approaches. Uh, And of course, now you're you're dealing with a SaaS application that can be updated for all customers at any time. How do you align those things? And some people would say you can't. There's no possible way that you can. But for us, it seemed really important to continue to maintain some agility. And philosophically, even for the FDA, I think it's valuable for the customer as well. If you think about, say, if you found a defect or if you found an improvement in an overall medical device, how long do you think you know, it normally would take to roll that out to all those medical devices? It's hard to say. What's the mechanism for doing that? For the customer, how long does it take for them to actually receive new value in their product? and actually get it onto their system. If you walk around any given laboratory, you're going to see stacks of unused, uninstalled CDs of software that was never actually put on the system. They can't get a value of any of that of that software. And so for us, philosophically, going back to that, that continuous kind of ability to move and change and evolve and deliver new value to our customer, uh, deliver fixes, know and detect problems before our customers even realize that they're there uh, was important. And so we had to kind of work hard to say, okay, how are we going to set up our our processes, ISO 1345 certified processes to cover these needs and yet also maintain our agility. And so, yeah, we did come up with some in a lot of our development processes actually as a side effect, create a lot of the artifacts. And so our developers don't necessarily even know that that's what they're doing, at least in their whole understanding of the full process and what it actually builds out. But we have fully compliant, 100% code reviews, traceability, all the things that you might want to check the boxes on if you're going to go after this. But we do it in a way that maintains our ability to continuously move forward and deliver that, deliver that value throughout. That's important. I mean, it's cool. It's interesting. It's fun. You know, developers, you know, would prefer that, et cetera. But organizationally, it's critical because if you're not able to move, if you're not able to learn, it's not able to evolve and deliver that, that value to the customer, then you just, you're going to miss out on those opportunities that show up to pivot quickly, to respond to a need and to continue to apply that learning at a, at a rapid rate. Or at some point, you just slow down with your own mass, your own weight, and you just you just can't continue to move forward. I think there's a lot of companies that would be envious of the position you're in from a technology perspective. You know, some of our customers, we talk a lot about digital transformation and agile transformation. And I mean, it just, it's this huge, enormous thing that's, you know, I don't, I don't think they stop and evaluate sort of philosophically where they're going and what, what makes sense for, for them. It's, it's more of just sort of chasing what companies do. And for you guys, last week when we, we were doing our virtual lunch, we had a conversation around just sort of difficulty or the challenges with integrating multiple deep domains where they have to collaborate. Like you have scientists and engineers and tests and product and, and you, have, you have these, these are very deep domains. And in order to to enable you to have that sort of agility and to align philosophically, they have to work together and collaborate. I see people struggle with that day after day, even SEP in terms of UX and engineering and getting them to, to work seamlessly. Just talk about some of the things that you guys have done to enable that and, and maybe some of the tactics, but some of the philosophy of just how, 
how you've helped foster that sort of culture. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's not an easy, an easy thing to even articulate first is to recognize that there is a challenge there that, that has to be addressed, that it's not going to happen on its own. That my observation, anecdotal as it is, is that someone who has mastered a deep domain, may it be software engineering, uh, a PhD in some kind of hard science, uh, mathematics, even sales, marketing, these are deep, all each in their own way, a deep domain that requires real professional experience and, and expertise in order to do well. And I'd realized pretty early at Indigo that our superpower was that we had a lot of these very deep domains sitting at lunch together and communicating together. And that in that, that combination of those things, that that's where the magic happens. That's where you get to create things that it's really hard to create at some organizations because those folks are in different buildings, right? They don't even talk, let alone collaborate uh, and have lunch. And so but there's also a challenge with that, which is if you've mastered one of those deep domains, it's really easy to discount another one. It's really easy to see at the surface another another domain and say, well, I could probably do that one too. And maybe you could, but you want to shortcut it, right? You want to read a book about it and then think that reading a book about that, that domain or an article, even, even better, some blog post that someone wrote about, well, here's how you do UX or here's how you do sales or here's how you do software. And now you feel like you're an expert, right? Because you're, you've mastered this other domain. And so you try to transfer your, your expertise in the other domain into this, this one that you've just, at best, you've like read a little article. And so we talk a lot about the difference of knowing about something and knowing something. And there's a, there's a vast difference. And that, that difference is in practice, right? Have you practiced that skill? Have you practiced that discipline? Have you done the work? And so... First off, it was just kind of teaching ourselves to how to talk about it and, and then trying to educate those around us when it, when it showed up as an issue, educating each other about, okay, here's what, here's the mistake that may be being made here and really cautioning, learning how to, figuring out how to talk about it and educate the, each other about well, why is this offensive when you come in and, and try to design something that you really don't understand at all. It, Philosophically, there were certain things we undid. We, you know, that was kind of counterintuitive. We told our quality people, you cannot test like a user. And they're like, but all the books tell me I should get in the mind of the user. You're like, have you lived in a laboratory? Have you reviewed data? You can't. You can't be that person. So don't try to pretend to be. Understand where you're coming at and what you can do in terms of that exploratory testing and some of those things. But that means that we've got a gap and we need to bring that, you know, we need to still fill that with someone who actually can get the mind of the user, their emotional state, how they feel about and respond to the things that are on the screen. And that goes across all the domains. Uh, it goes into when we're talking about well, how does the market going to respond to this particular feature? We can have an opinion, potentially, as a technologist or something like that, but we are not the user. We are not the laboratory. And so we are combining People that worked in a lab, people that ran scientific instruments. We had several PhDs that had degrees in hard science. We have math that I can't even begin to explain in our product. Uh, not to mention the software engineering, infrastructure, DevOps, quality assurance, regulatory domains. All of those things live inside a fairly small company in a fairly small space and have to all work together in order to get the job done. That's pretty amazing, man. As someone who has tried to help others figure out that path and 
uh, navigate some of those challenges. Like I said, even internally and in, within SEP, man, it's it's a challenge. And what you guys have have pulled off and and got there is pretty amazing. I know one time you showed me a picture that you had tried to draw or architect this. I don't know if you ever finished it or where that got. Yeah, I do have that picture around. I and I did it. You know, that's how I think. <laughs> so I built this visualization of the flow. It's really a, almost a value chain. Now I have that word. I didn't at the time even really know what that meant. But it was a value chain of how you build products, and it and it started with kind of the understanding of the market and the need, and it went through design, feature design, and that experience, and then through construction and the UI design elements, and that. I really wanted to kind of have a map that I could point to and show people even for myself and articulate here, you live in this box. If you want to play in this box, you're welcome to do that. Here's the stack of books and you'll be busy for the next couple of years while you earn the right to have an opinion in that space. My counterpart at Indigo, his name is Jim and and he runs uh, kind of the product side of things. And he has a a phrase that we use pretty often, a consequence and basis free opinion. (laughs) So it's the idea that someone has a consequence. It's no consequence to them, right? They just have an opinion. They like to share it and it's basis free too. They just made it up because that sounds good. Um, And so, yeah, we, we try to dodge basing too much of anything on consequence and basis free opinions within the organization. And we were gentle about it uh, in reminding someone that that's maybe where they're coming from. But it's, it's important that everybody understand and value the contributions of the experts that you have, and then allow them to have that voice. And each time you inter- integrate a new discipline, we're recently started to integrate design and UX design, UI and, and visual design. And that's a process, you know, and I'm in the process right now of kind of helping our organization understand what does that look like? And you have to teach the organization how to interact with that discipline in an appropriate and, and valuable way. So each time you kind of bring one of those in, you do have to repeat the exercise. It's not an automatic thing. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to go a little bit deeper, tactically speaking, as you are thinking about like this newest discipline coming in, what are maybe the one or two things that you would tell somebody embarking on that journey to think about, to try? Really, you're going to do the most good for yourself and for your company if you just recognize that it is a real activity is integrating that discipline, it, that it's not going to happen automatically, that you're not going to just uh, give it under a a small amount of attention, right? You're not going to treat it as something that's just going to happen without some actual interest and thoughtfulness and reflective on what the the dynamics are. And so you're not just looking at it philosophically. You can't, again, don't make your own mistake and read a blog post and go, oh, see, I mean, this is is obviously what we're going to do. We're going to drop it in there. No problem. You got to look at the personalities that you have, uh, the way that they're typically used to interacting. And probably more important than teaching the new, say, design person in our case, uh, how to interact with the organization, I'm going to have to teach the organization how to interact with our design person. And so what is an appropriate set of expectations? You know, what can you ask for and how does that work? And so I can't give you a kind of a cookie cutter approach for that other than to say you need to take it very intentionally. And what I will say as well is that don't expect to get it right the first time. Um, you're going to try some things and it's not going to work very well. It's going to be, you're like, man, that just didn't, 
didn't seem to work. But like any other process, when you're looking at building software and other things, it's it's a design iteration type of process. And so you do something, you learn from it, you reflect on why it worked or what didn't work about it. Get structured a little bit early on, over uh, invest in structure early on in terms of kind of setting expectations, both for the person who's the design person. You will have to teach them some extra skills potentially that they won't always have to use. But early on, over communication, being clear and, re- and reiterating what you think you heard and what you're what you're going to be doing, uh, what the expectations are, and then be prepared as a leader to advocate on behalf of not just that person but as a discipline. Problems are ver- are very rarely about the people; uh, they're almost always about the structure of the organization and the expectations and processes that are there. Sure, there are people problems, but those usually kind of become obvious in their own way. It's very rarely about the people. And so even though that's usually where people start and it's almost always about the structure and the expectations. And so start with some, some structure and expectations, iterate that until you feel like you've got good communication and things going on. And then um, you can begin to relax some of that structure as the process itself sort of takes over. I, I, I love the, the idea of like teaching the organization and it sounds like, you know, really being willing to walk into this uh, from a, a humble perspective. <laughs> Otherwise, you will be humbled by it. <laughs> Very much so. I, I assume I know nothing <laughs> or about it. I, I, I assume I know very little. And so I have to kind of come in and learn. But at the same time, I'm willing to, to kind of do that. And I, I, I would kind of map that back even to the regulatory piece, right? Uh, a lot of times you want to, you want a quick fix. You'd like to read something and just kind of apply it. But the way we got around some of the typical, you can never do this in a regulated environment, really came back to how much do you really understand what the regulations are intending to do, right? How much are you willing to actually invest and understand uh, the philosophical approach and the goals of that? Because what you're really being asked to do is make a new map of how to fulfill those goals but against a different context. And in many cases, that's sort of the exercise is whether it's the product portfolio that you have, the development team and the way that it approaches its work, the regulatory processes that you're dealing with, or integrating a new discipline into a company that is uh, is trying to expand its its capacities and capabilities. Uh, you're building a new map. And so you have to be willing to do the work to get to know it. And, and yeah, very much start from a humble place. You can certainly draw on experiences in the past, but assume that they're at least largely wrong to be just straight applied to the new situation. Tim, you mentioned building a new map, and I know you have shared with me multiple times this notion that strategy, whether it's a new discipline or business, whatever, has to begin with diagnosis. And you have sort of a problem framework that you oftentimes will sort of be used to help help in that. I think that would be really useful for other other folks. I know it sounds simple when you've shared it with me, much more difficult to put into practice. It is. I mean, a lot of things are that way, right? But so, yeah, the diagnosis piece. So that's a, a term. I mean, where I got that that explanation is is from the book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. I think one of the biggest takeaways I took away from that book was that articulation of strategy always starts with diagnosis. If you don't understand a problem, then you there's no way to alter it. Not really. And so, yeah, the problem framework started even before that, but it's basically that you have three steps and they get very much exponentially more difficult as they go go through. Uh, and the first one is the obvious one that 
there's a problem. Someone comes to you uh, often as a leader in an organization or otherwise and, and articulates a problem. This is an issue. It can be about a person. This person isn't doing their work. It could be about a, a frustration with another part of the, of the overall organization. It could be just something that the product is broken. We need to fix this. We need to recode this. Any number of problems. That's step one. That step one problem is where it begins. And a lot of times people start there and they try to start solving that problem. They'll go have a conversation with that person. They, they try to address whatever was the articulated problem. But uh, in reality, that's not the real problem. And so you start with the problem that's been, been brought to your attention. And the first step uh, past that is now what's the real problem? And that's hard, like significantly hard. Like it, it really takes kind of that learning to go in and really understand and diagnose what is the actual problem, what's actually going on. And as I alluded to before, for instance, it's it's often not usually about that person or about that that part of the code. There's some something underneath that that is the real problem. And that can take some time to really to get to the heart of. And then the third piece is, and what are you going to do about it? And the way you're going to do about it is, again, it's a big step. Uh, it seems very simple. Like, okay, there's a problem. What's the real problem? What am I going to do about it? And the what I'm going to do about it can be complicated. The changing the underlying forces, for instance, within an organization that led to, say, a mistake. Say a mistake was made, a defect was released. And someone's like, so-and-so is a lazy person. They, did, they released bad code. Sometimes how it comes to you in the early days is uh, it's easy to blame somebody or, or some sort of situation or so-and-so won't listen. And you're like, okay, something's going on here. Let me understand what it is. Let me understand the people. Let me understand the forces. Let me understand the, the situation, the emotions that might be involved, maybe territory, maybe a misunderstanding, maybe the language being used. The words literally that they're using to talk to each other are unclear to one another, right? So there's a confusion in communication about uh, what's happening. And so digging through all that and actually understanding that is, is a complicated step, but critical. And then what you're going to do about it, once you have that diagnosis, it can be a, a multi-step process. It can, and maybe it's not a quick fix because if you've diagnosed that you've got some underlying philosophical issues, some underlying beliefs in the, in the group about each other that are, that are happening, then how do you start to change people's belief? right? About those other groups. How do you reshape their understanding of who they are, what their identity is, or how they diagnose issues? That it's his own set of change or, you know, challenge. But if you're going to do long-term sustained sort of growth in organizational transformation, then that's the process you have to do, whether it's in the product, you're just trying to make it better either to the market or technology wise, uh, or if you're trying to do organization, or even if you're just trying to build your first team, if you kind of use that idea of like the problem presented is never the real problem, look for the real problem, and then be willing to do the work to actually address the real problem. Yeah, sounds simple. The steps are easy to remember. Doing the steps, not so much. You mentioned uh, good, bad, good strategy, bad strategy. I always like to ask people, especially in the product space, what they've been reading lately or things that they've read that they've found interesting, maybe in the last six months or what, you know, what are, what are some things that you've read or uh, enjoyed and maybe not even necessarily related to job, but just other things you've, you've found to be 
Interesting. Structured thinking is always uh, an important thing. And depending on where people are at, I'm not sure who all, uh, you know, all the different folks that are involved in as an audience, but understanding businesses and how their different pieces work together um, is pretty important. So this is an old book. This is not one I recently read, but I bring it up because if you haven't read it or kind of been exposed to it, then go look at it. And this is business model generation, which really kind of put forward the first idea of business, the business model canvas. Is it the only way to look at a business? No. But what it does do is kind of start to set up your understanding of, of how these things work and how these different areas and disciplines and expertise, it gives a way for you to structure thinking about how those things combine to form an actual successful organization. Whether you're just a piece of that organization or you're running one, having some way of kind of thinking about a structured tool for thinking about and diagnosing what's going on and where maybe you need to change things or maybe you want to change things or where things are working and not working, I would say is a really good one. Is that something you guys are still using? I remember we, we first talked about Business Model Canvas. You guys were still downtown. We met down downtown and me and you and Randy and some other and is that something I just you saying that I was like, oh man, that's been a long time since we talked about it. I don't use it formally necessarily. I don't necessarily break it out, although I do sometimes. I mean, you know, again, I have these sort of models and tools that I'll just use for myself to kind of go, hey, let me think through this. Like, what is, what's the different pieces here? And if, if not that, then I sometimes make my own, right? What are the, how do I factor? Because business model canvas is, again, if you look, if you take it to the meta, is a way of going, okay, how do I kind of break this apart and get it out of my head, which is a very limited space? and get it in front of me so that I can interact with more significant, more expanded view of the world and then start to structure my thinking about it. And so whether it's business model canvas or like I talked to you earlier, I created that map of domains. That was just another one of those things, right? And I could share that map of domains and people go like, maybe get value out of that, but it's just another map of those things. It's a separation, a factoring of a problem in a way that allows me to interact with it at a deeper level without having to try to keep it all in my head. And so I, I throw that one out because it's a fairly accessible book. It's certainly not the only model out there. You know, I've been reading some some other types of, of strategy books and things of that nature lately. But I do find that one to be kind of a, a fundamental of, in terms of kind of structured approach or thinking around a problem and how you might get, get at its deeper relationships and forces. Uh, in fact, I may have even built my original domain map after having seen that model. I can't remember if that was which which way that came, but the idea that I could factor and relation things, put things in relation to each other in space, and that might give me a, some insight and understanding when I'm looking for the real problem, so I can go solve the real problem. That's a tool for me. I think you know, there's been a number of books recently. I've been really digging into this whole strategy thing. Strategy is such a buzzword. It's so it's. <laughs> So it's so helpful and, and important and critical and useless as a word and an and idea because like, what does that even mean? Good strategy, bad strategy was very helpful for me in that regard, just because it kind of extract, abstracted the idea of what strategy you talked about diagnosis and the elements of kind of strategy and things. But again, it's not a formulaic book. You're not going to be able to take it and go apply it to your business uh, tomorrow, but it, it's pretty helpful. And then I think the other thing, uh, a friend of mine, again, Jim, the guy I referred to earlier that I work with at Indigo, got me a book recently that's one of uh, Ryan Holiday's books, um, Stillness is the Key, I guess the name of it, and creating space in your life and kind of mechanics in your life. And so the, the, the book, it just kind of goes through some principles and says, hey, create these kinds of opportunities in your life. 
a way of structuring your life to kind of set it up for success. And it's not formulaic in the sense of like, well, you need to get up at five and you need to drink a glass of water and you need to eat these things and then get to the, I mean, it doesn't do that kind of philosophy. It, it really is kind of, again, going back to the roots of some of those principles and saying, these are principles that if you're able to apply these to your life, a little bit better each day, then long-term, they will make a difference for you. And I bring that up mainly, you know, you asked about books I've been reading. And so I have a tendency, I sit down in the morning and I gather myself. And one of the things I do is I'll, I'll read just like a little chunk of that book um, here recently, but I, I kind of connect it up to my approach in a lot of things, which is I don't try to make these big giant leaps of change more than I try to get up every day and, and get that 1% better in some dimension. And I think that can apply to obviously myself, but it also applies to organizations. It applies to kind of aligning your, your company, your team with, with where you'd like it to go and not necessarily get distracted by, did we get feature X out or did we, you know, get account Y big things, important things for sure. But, uh, you know, as a leader in the organization and, and a critical as a product organization is that you spend as much or more time working on the business as you do working in the, and just as this book, I kind of says, it's like, are you working on yourself and on your life or just in your life? And I think those, those two pieces kind of line up well for me. Well, to quote you last week, you said, isn't it funny that change is much easier when it's someone else? And that's <laughs> yeah. so true. <laughs> yes. Yes. Change is always, it's easier to point out the need for it. It's easier to, to, to tell someone to change. And, uh, and But yeah, change for yourself, your organization, things like that. A lot harder when it's you. Tim, I'm going to have to go read a new book. I, stillness is the key. Um, that I don't know, describing that resonated. I feel like I could use some stillness for me right now. I've been, I've been working on trying to get comfy in the quiet. There's a little moniker that I'm repeating to myself every day. So I love that. I'm going to have to go read that one. You have shared uh, so many good pieces of advice and amazing thinking. You know, I think you're going to have to come back on the show here in a few months and tell us how things are going and maybe expand on some of these things because uh, there's a lot here. I feel like we could probably fill a few hours of content uh, pretty easily. So I appreciate you hopping on with us. It's been great. Happy to do it. And uh, obviously, you know, I spent a lot of time with Mr. Schinkel sharpening my philosophy is that that'd be the one other piece of advice I'd have is, is find people that you can uh, banter things around because that you, you definitely sharpen each other and find those, find those folks that you can come out and sharpen those ideas. Uh, they start with just a glimmer and they, and they get a lot brighter as you, as you get them out there and wrestle through. Yeah. Could not agree more really. Thank you so much for being on with us, brother. Hope you have an awesome rest of your day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. I'm Zach Darnell, and this is Behind the Product, an original podcast by SCP. You can find more about us at scp.com slash podcast and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.